Welcome to Big Men Big Theology. I'm Cody. I'm Jordan. I'm Trey. How's it going, fellas? What's going on, guys? We Cody have we have the good doctor with us. Actually, that's another, another good doctor. That's another true. Doctor. Not not the normal good doctor we that's have. That's true. So we need to introduce our guest for this episode, and I'll use the memo on the back of his book. Uh, we have Doctor Joshua R. Ferris. What's the uh, R stand for, Joshua? Ryan. Ryan, okay. Nice. Should I be getting that close to you? Yeah, you can. Yeah. That's fine. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. so Josh, okay. Josh <coughs> is the Chester and Margaret Paluk lecturer. Pollock. Pollock lecturer. There it is. At We're Southern University. Baptist. We, 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 don't, we don't get any words. Right. <laughs> um, and yeah, so he's here with us today, and we are here particularly before we dive into banter, talking, well, we'll talk about banter, then get to the book that he just wrote, which I found to be really helpful. Um, it's an introduction to theological anthropology, humans, both creaturely and divine. But before we dive That's into... a big title right there. It is a Joshua. big title. So, but before we get into... You can handle it. Talking about anthropology. <laughs> Even Southern Baptists can handle it. That's what he says. We are big men with big theology. That's right. We, can we are. But before we dive into the book, uh, yeah, we can banter about... Okay. How's your quarantine been, Joshua? Yeah, I haven't seen you in two months now. We Joshua is normally one of our smoking buddies, so we. That's a weird way to phrase it. Uh, <laughs> so usually, I mean, let me just, let's just that's say that weird. we smoke cigars. It's not like well, we're right, out. but that's hey, a we weird ate way sushi to say too. It. Oh yeah, he's sushi my sushi. Buddy. I was gonna see if you want to go get sushi after this. But Jordan would word it. He's my actually. raw fish buddy instead of sushi buddy. But so what it <laughs> what it is is uh, we typically have a group of guys who will go to a local cigar shop here in Montgomery on Thursday nights and Joshua is is, is one of the lucky few who typically come. And so that's what he means by smoking. One guys. of the unusual I ones love you. That comes I love right. the unusual. I uh, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, I love you too. Love I've been missing you the I've last two months. I mean, it's been hard. Every time we get together, he's like, "Where's Jordan?" <laughs> yeah, I've been asking. When's he going to come by? Doesn't right. he just live down the street or something? It's, he never wants to see me anymore? I only know about it like five minutes beforehand. So that it's every Friday night, though, that y'all do it's, this. It's right? been Friday. That's what we've been doing lately. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so tell me about the haircut, Josh. So we were, <laughs> were going to get in that. So Josh's hair, it looks like his two-year-old cut it. <laughs> I'm sorry. Gosh, why would you and say that? First, you need to you need to establish. I'm sorry, whoever cut your hair. Yeah, cut your wife. No, my wife. I'm about to say we invite him to be on the podcast and just start slandering his family. What can, what, <laughs> what can I do? You know, it's it's been everything's been shut down. I, mean, it's I had great. to get it trimmed. I, I, yeah, I mean, it was coven over my ears like the yours. Guy shading my head, so I was like, I'm done with it. I'm just gonna shave my head. Why guys just can't be like me and just grow it out? You know? Yeah. Yeah, hopefully it's on now. Maybe is it on? Has no, has no, it been no, recording? The game was cut up a little too high. You can pull the mic away from your face a little bit if you okay. want. It's yeah. picking up a lot of you. Yeah. So so who cut your hair? It was uh, say, my father's wife. Father's she wife. <laughs> so, she did a pretty good job, right? Uh, so yeah, your mom? It's, it's not bad. It's not I mean, bad. I mean, it's not around. You know, it's clear around it's, the ears. It's, okay. it's clean, Jordan, clean Josh, cut. Jordan cut somebody's hair. Her trimmed somebody's <laughs> hair like two weeks ago, and their wife was furious about it. And so <laughs> you can, really so, so, so you can, so you can throw that at him if you want. That's funny. That's very funny. That's good. Well, I mean, what else you been doing? Like, what have you been writing more? I mean, what's the? Yeah, what have I been doing during this whole lockdown? 
hanging out with Cody on occasion. That's true. Thank reading, you. reading, smoking, drinking good drinks. Um, like Dr. Pepper. Yeah. Like. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we're, we're in a Southern Baptist Absolutely. <laughs> Southern Baptist. Sorry. Southern no, Baptist. No, Coke. Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola. Coffee if we get a little, you know. If it gets a little, a little wild little, and crazy. A little wild. Did you drink Coke with um, a guy named Jack or – uh, are we allowed to? I'm joking. Southern Baptist, are we allowed to yeah. drink? We, I thought uh, his name is <laughs> Consistent ones can. <laughs> consistent, consistent, consistent ones can. Okay, good, good. Uh, yeah, so uh, beyond that, I've been teaching online, and I've been, yeah, I've been working on several writing projects lately. What are you writing on now before we get into the soul? Yeah, well, I just finished up a, a lecture for Mundelein Seminary where I've been a lecturer, and, and of course, we had to record it online because I can't actually go there right now. So uh, I was just uh, defending a version of the soul against um, against uh, Thomas's view of the soul. Thomas Aquinas, that is. Okay, not yeah. Thomas in the Bible. No, not Thomas in the Bible. Thomas Aquinas, <laughs> the great medieval theologian. Okay. Yes. Uh, so, um, yeah, I've been working on that, and... Um, <coughs> Gosh, working on a few edited projects. Uh, so it's been, I mean, it's been a productive time of, of lockdown. Man. But uh, it's not been a very social time, right? Yeah. Well, I guess social I mean, distancing. We've been, we've been practicing social distancing, except with Cody. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, I've, I've been missing all of my... What, three friends here in Montgomery, Alabama? Yeah, but still hearing about, like, your productiveness... Really humbles me because I just got really stoked about a freehand circle that I just drew, <laughs> and I nailed it. It's a very good circle. Well, that Look at that bad boy. Circle. Trey really wants to talk about this freehand circle. I do. I don't know. I because don't because it. because it's a thing. Apparently, freehand circle competitions are a thing, and that's the best one I've ever drawn. And I took a picture of it. If anybody wants it, I'll gladly uh, I'll gladly put it or, or have a I'll, bidding. I'll put it on our Facebook. It. Yeah, I'll put it on our Facebook yeah, get a page. Picture of that thing. There you go. Yeah. That's so funny. But yeah, so steering the conversation away from freehand circles and towards <laughs> uh, towards your book. More important. Um, more important yeah, right. way more like the nature of the soul, Trey. Yeah. Maybe you need to evaluate yours. Wow, Ooh. that was wow. that was a gut check. Well, <laughs> I didn't mean that as a, I sorry. Maybe I didn't mean that as a gut we're check. We were talking about the theology I, of friendship earlier, and now Cody <laughs> just ran <laughs> <really laughs> after you. Cody's coming at me hard. Forgive me, Trey. That's I didn't so I didn't mean it as a. <laughs> anyway, so. So your new book, An Introduction to Theological Anthropology, published by Baker, um, is kind of getting into what it really means to be a human being, and particularly what it means to have a soul, which I feel like is kind of the crux of the book, is what it means to have a soul, what that entails for various doctrines. And so if you could, um, just starting out, how would you define um, the soul? And why is it important for us to think about why we have a soul? Because I imagine m the grand majority of evangelicals would probably say, yeah, I have a soul, obviously. But that's probably as far as they think about it, mm -hmm. right? The fact that they have one. Mm -hmm. they, don't, there's not, they don't think much deeper than that. So why is it important for us to think about um, our soulish nature? Um, and what exactly is it? Yeah, good. So... Uh, in the in the book, I I, I do touch on, upon the soul body or mind body relationship in every chapter as I run across the various doctrines uh, related to um, what it means to be human, um, and so what does it mean to be a soul? Well, um, there's a 
the tradition, the age-old belief that uh, we are not just our bodies or not just our bodies and brains, but we are actually ensouled beings. So we have some sort of transcendent uh, part or a feature to our being human that, that makes us, as the tradition would say, much of the tradition, makes us similar to God in some way, some form or fashion. Now, obviously, we need to be careful about how we articulate that, right? Uh, that similarity relationship between humans and God. But uh, nonetheless, it's the sole part of us that, that somehow makes us like God. And so there's this old teaching about the imago dei, the image of God in, in Genesis 1 and, and in several other places in the Old Testament, where it seems to indicate that there is some sort of um, a relationship that is of a, um, here's a, here's a, I'm going to throw out one big word, metaphysical relationship between humans and God. Metaphysical just means that uh, in terms of our constitution as, as human beings, there is something about us that makes us like God and that provides the ground for uh, the afterlife, if, if there is such a thing as an afterlife, which as Christians we believe there is an afterlife. I think all of us believe that, right? <laughs> I, um, think, I think we can agree on that. Yeah. So. We know so, that there is one. Uh, so what is it that makes us survive or, or, or makes it possible for us to survive in the afterlife, to persist, to live on, and to live in uh, what uh, traditional, traditional Christians have called the doctrine of the disembodied intermediate state, right? The state between physical death and physical resurrection. And, uh, well, what, what, uh, what makes it possible is the fact that we are ensouled beings. We are a soul, or we have a soul, depending on your, your view of, of the soul. And so that runs as a—that's as a, uh, um, a, that's an important theme throughout the whole of the book. And I think it's important to uh, getting a good grasp on what it means to be human, uh, this doctrine of the soul— is central to our doctrine of humanity, mm-hmm. and I think it's been central throughout uh, much of uh, church history. Um, so, yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah. Yeah. So what would be some kind of counter views to what you are presenting in your book regarding the soul? You brought up Aquinas, right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so... And especially in the contemporary literature, there's there's this growing trend uh, toward this idea that human beings are primarily physical in nature all the way down. Uh, in other words, there's there's this view that we are biological organisms, and some uh, some would call it we're we're animals. We're we're we might be sophisticated animals who have higher level capacities in our minds, right? But uh, we are nonetheless animals or biological organisms that have been uh, uh, evolutionarily produced. But, um, but we're not souls in the sense that there is this something other, this transcendent fact about us that makes us uh, uniquely human or uniquely like God. So that would be the view called physicalism. So there's a growing number of Christian physicalists, what we might call Christian physicalists, who would affirm something like that, that we are just a biological organism, an animal, a body-brain, a composite, but no immaterial part, no soul part, no mind that can exist beyond the body. Yeah, so that's, that's uh, one view uh, that's becoming more popular and um, I think there's a lot of problems with that, which I try to address in the book and show that 
This is really important to Christians. If you're going to be a physicalist, well, there's a lot that's at stake. There's a high cost. Um, and how, how do they yeah. think about how, how do the phys- physicalists think about glory? Think about heaven? Think about uh, life beyond the temporal body? Yeah, yeah. So, so for those who are denying that there is a soul that can exist on its own, uh, <clears throat> mostly mostly physicalist. Uh, they would highlight the physical resurrection of the body. And they would say the physical resurrection of the body, that's where it's at. That's the hope of the Christian. That's the hope of the believer. We're going to be on a new earth that's physical, just like this earth that we're on right now. And we're going to be physically embodied once again. So our bodies that that die and are in the grave, those will be resurrected again. And so um, when you're reading the, the Christian physicalist literature, that's what the physicalist will highlight. It's all about the physical resurrection of the body. And um, so what I try to highlight in here is, well, they're missing at least one important part of the afterlife. And there's something, there's at least two big things at stake when they do that. And what are those things? Yeah, they don't hey, thank you. Again. I was <laughs> waiting for you to prompt that. <laughs> please, I was waiting for you to please, ask that. tell us those What are they? So um, one big thing is this. If, if you take it that we are just physical, embodied beings without a soul that can exist apart from the body, well, then uh, there's a question about whether or not it's coherent that you will survive at all. And I'm uh, inclined to think that we probably won't. You're talking about in the physicalist argument. Yeah. Yeah, okay, just making sure. So if you're, if you're emphasizing just the physical resurrection of the body, then you're, you're, um, holding out, you're holding out this view. You're basically saying that at physical death, we die and go out of existence. And at some point in the future, God has to bring us back into existence. So for them, physical resurrection is not simply the resurrection of my body, but it's the recreation of me. So that is a coherent problem. But there's another problem. We can talk we about that in a moment. So, yeah, well, so because so, like, a follow-up question I would have to that is, how do they reconcile scriptures such as the thief on the cross, where Jesus looks at him and says, because I can only assume that they would assume that you would be in some type of soul sleep until, this, until the second res- resurrection, right? They wouldn't say soul sleep, would they? Well, you know what I mean. Some, yeah, of them, some of them would call it soul sleep, but I think they mean something else than what many mean by soul sleep. Some, okay. I think they would loosely, but how would they, they might mean, loosely call it soul sleep. So how would they reconcile, though, the, you know, you will be with me in paradise today? Yes. You know, how, how do they reconcile that scripture then with their view? Yeah, so many of them would say something like, um, <clears throat> so there's, there's, there is a book called Whatever Happened to the Soul that's a col- edited collection, and I think they deal with that passage specifically as physicalists, Christian physicalists. And so they, they say something like, well, there's, there's, there's a different time that we're dealing with. So anytime we're talking about the afterlife, we're already talking about something rather abstract and complicated. So they would say that, um, well, we can legitimately take Christ's uh, words on the cross to the thief, and, and, and we can read it commonsensically by saying, um, that they're that ref, that they're for all intents and purposes from, uh, in terms of his experience he will be resurrected immediately um, but what that means precisely uh, well that's that's up for debate 
So there, there's still some discussion to be had about technically what Christ means. Um, hmm. Yeah. It's uh, interesting. So I, I was, I haven't read your book yet, but I, I, I actually do. You should. Yeah. Um, you promised me as a copy, should, by the way. As should everybody listening to this <laughs> I thought episode. I was get a copy well, today. that was for my other book, actually. Oh, it wasn't this That one. was my academic monograph. Okay. <laughs> academic monograph. That's a word right there. That is. Uh, <laughs> Um, so, so how do, I was just looking at some of the titles. How does this view of the soul affect male and female, like the, these dynamics? Because you have chapters about that uh, and, and the image bearing and Imago Dei. So what do you think and uh, how, how are you thinking in those dynamics? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, should, I, should I step back just for a moment yeah, and talk ahead. about the intermediate state and then we can talk yeah, about yeah, yeah, gender and sure, sex? Because sure. that's... Uh, 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 a much easier topic, obviously, right? <laughs> it's not. It's not highly debated at all. No, no, not at all. Um, so, the, one of the other things I want to say about the intermediate state, which I think is really important, is is that um, imagine you are you're a pastor, right? You guys are pastors, aren't you? Uh, we are technically pastors in training, or uh, we're not ordained. We're not ordained. You're not ordained, ordained yet. Right now. No. Oh, I thought you were. The hope is to be ordained. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So. You're on your way, uh, hopefully. Potentially, <laughs> we're congregationalists, so the congregation has to. They uh, have to affirm you. They have to affirm us. Okay. So. Okay. Hopefully, they will. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Let's pray. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us today. <laughs> we're gonna go into a time of prayer and fasting. <laughs> uh, yeah. So. Um, uh, yeah, so imagine one of your um, parishioners or congregate members. Sorry. Yeah, thank you. Good this grief. Is, this, this is, is Baptist. World, baby. This is Baptist. <laughs> uh, you gotta know who you're talking to. Our audience. All right. Is all right. Very good. Con- I know. Imagine one of your congregate members is on their deathbed in the hospital, yeah. Yeah. and you're going to counsel them. Right. So uh, there's a couple of ways you can counsel them, right? If you are a physicalist who believes that the hope of the Christian is literally the physical resurrection and that there is nothing in between that and physical death, then I imagine you would say to them, hey, um, I'm looking forward to seeing you someday again. Uh, Don't know when that will be, but it'll be someday. Looking forward to it. (laughs) Hopefully you're going to be on the new earth again. Soon. Right? Soon. I don't know how long it'll be. It might be another million years, but soon. Um, in the scope of eternity, of course. But if, you're, if you believe that human beings have souls, right, that exist right. beyond the body, right. yeah. and they exist in the disembodied intermediate state, right. then as uh, somebody like Thomas Aquinas and much of the Reformed tradition would say, uh, then we believe something distinct. There's an immediate hope for the believer, not just a final hope of the believer, which is resurrection, but the immediate hope is that we will, as Christians, we will exist beyond the body, and we will be in the presence of God immediately upon death. And that's a hopeful thing to say. When somebody's on their deathbed, hey, um, you've been, you're a Christian. You've been a faithful Christian all your life. Uh, you're going to see God. Amen. Yeah. That's yeah, because, I mean, because how, how else do you go? Like, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We see that there is an absence from the body. There is, there is something else besides just body. Yeah. At least according to, you know, God's infallible, inerrant word. <laughs> yeah. 
I agree with that. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm are, agreeing with you here. I'm just, I, I, I just want to pause to, and say To be so honest, to be you honest. You got a little background of this relationship between us and Ferris. I want you, I want our listeners to know, we don't agree with everything Ferris uh, says. We love Joshua Ferris because he is so funny and so uh, kind to us and kind to our common language nonsense, um, us commoners. And so I just want our listeners to know that uh, we as big men, big theology, don't agree with everything, but we do love this brother, and we we we, uh, we really learn a lot from each other. So we're yeah. thankful for him, um, even though we don't agree on every aspect, and we'll, we'll talk through – we potentially may in the future talk through some of those aspects, but um, I'm just very thankful to have these conversations with Joshua as we – continue to grow together so hey i appreciate that i feel very warm inside there i know you should come back Amen. to be a baptist <laughs> Water, water's warm over here baby it's great i love my baptist brothers especially Amen. the reformed baptist there you go were you in the Amen. right crowd um so um i do want to get but before you i mean after you say this question i do want you to come back to the gender stuff because i yeah. think that's oh, yeah. important yeah, that's helpful. i think yeah one issue i'd like to get to before we get to gender is um there's when you throughout the language image of god a whole lot of different people mean very different things when they say what constitutes the what makes you in the image of god you know um in seminary you read through historical theology books and you see all these various views so if you could just kind of walk through like some of the major views of what it means to be yeah. in the image of god and then kind of throw out again the position that you're arguing for in your book yeah yeah by the way i'm drinking a really good ipa right now it's a east coast style <laughs> ipa i'm kidding i'm just kidding uh, I wish I was drinking. Anyway, um, um, do your fan are your fans okay with drinking? Uh, we don't know. But some of them are okay. Some of them might be teetotalers. Okay, we, who knows? Well, we, we love, love we love teetotalers too. We love them both. Yes, yes. <laughs> we love everybody here. <laughs> right. I was gonna say, when are we gonna have an episode on big men and big souls? Oh, I thought that's what we were doing. Oh, is that what we're doing now? <laughs> yeah. Big men with big souls. That's right. That's right. Okay. Um, yeah, so uh, to answer your question about the Imago Dei, there are a variety of views, um, as you mentioned, Cody, uh, that are prominent in the um, systematic theological literature on, on, on the human. And um, there are certainly – thank you. We just got some waters in here. You, you got some water. I got him one because I knew he ran out of coffee. Okay. Yeah, I did. Still need it. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, Anyway, yeah, uh, so there are a variety of views on uh, the Imago Dei, and um, <clears throat> so if you pick up uh, any systematic theology, you'll see that uh, typically they will mention three views or three models in particular. There's what's called the structural model uh, or the relational model and the functional model, and uh, so uh the structural model, in brief, just highlights the fact that humans had these unique uh, intellectual and volitional capacities. So they have these unique intellectual capacities that makes them rational in the way that God is rational and in a way that reflects the world around them, which is, uh, I mean, sometimes it's hard to tell if this world is really all that rational anymore. But um, <laughs> it was designed as being rational, <laughs> right, and orderly, and... Uh, uh, 
But and, and, and I guess it still is. Um, God has designed the world in an orderly and fa- uh, orderly fashion, right? As as the uh, wisdom literature tells us, and um, and our minds have somehow uh, reflect that order, and by so doing, it reflects the the order in God's nature. So a structural model really highlights those capacities, and and we see this in in the various uh, reformed confessions throughout church history, where there's an emphasis. When uh, the framers of those uh, confessions are describing the image, they're often describing them as, uh, as, as, as humans having these intellectual capacities that find their purpose in having a vision of God. Mm-hmm. And um, these volitional capacities or these moral capacities uh, of being like God in virtue of having a moral knowledge and moral conscience and the ability, at least some sort of baseline ability in terms of their volitions. I'm not trying to get into the Calvinist-Arminian discussion here. Um, they would both affirm that human beings have these volitional capacities, these willful capacities that help them to relate to God and the rest of creation. Right. And so that would be a sort of structural model. And I, I, I'm, I don't call my view a structural view, but I, I, I'm very sympathetic to a structural model. Um, there, uh, in contemporary literature, there's, there's more of an emphasis upon the relational. So um, uh, a relational model would say something like this. We're uh, imago dei bears. We, we, we uh, bear uh, this image in virtue of our relationship to God or in relation to the creation itself. And so uh, Karl Barth is one famous defender of uh, what's called a relational view. When he, especially when he talks about the nature of male and female in the marriage, as being the uh, the the ultimate mystery that points us to God in His nature, it's particularly His trinitarian nature. So Karl Barth is famous for that, and I I actually think there's a lot of merit in that view. Um, finally, there's a functional view, and this is very. Um, this is very common and, and uh, well represented in the Reformed theological tradition, I would say, uh, insofar that uh, human beings are image bearers in virtue of uh, being functional representatives of who God is in the covenants. So the covenants are, you might say, the backbone of how the, um, the Old and New Testaments develop. And um, in every single covenant, as God reveals himself in redemptive history, he reveals himself in and through primarily his covenant image bearers. Or that's, covenant where big, that's where big men, big theology would be, by the way. I just yeah. want to make sure the audience knows oh, good. where we're at. You would be a good covenantalist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's good. That's good. You can still hold to the structural view. Um <laughs> But uh, yeah, that fu- the functional representational view is sort of the the uh, a very a very popular view in, in uh, contemporary reform theology today. All right. Can I, so yeah, so we had a conversation a long probably it may have been six months to a year ago. Yeah, uh, um, you and I did. No, it was a whole group of us. Okay, and there was a guy arguing uh, for the, the the image of God being tainted after the fall. And saying that it only exists from from the fall until Christ, the image of God was base, basically non-existent. Um, yeah, I don't think on, I don't think tainted was his word. I think he said lost. Lost. Like the, the image was, of God was, was lost. That's right. It was lost yeah. from, until Christ came, and then once you're converted, yeah. you 
sort of regain the image of God. So what would you how how would you think about that that aspect of it? So when we when we're thinking about image like image bearing and the unbeliever. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. Thanks. <laughs> Man. I don't get that often from Josh. <laughs> We're we're speaking in public, so uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, uh, so yeah, so I think uh, I think the um, biblical data. It seems pretty clear to me that even non-believers after the post fall are uh, created in the image of God, and this is part and parcel of uh, how we make sense of dignity, depending on how you in- interpret Genesis nine six, where it talks about. Um, uh, particularly those who um, have uh, murdered or killed another, they're, uh, they've killed an image bearer, and their life is, is required of them, right? In other words, uh, some sort of retribution is due to them because they've, they've violated in a, a fellow image bearer. Uh, so, um, yeah, so I think um, there, there is a long discussion in, in the Reformed Theological tradition about the nature of the Imago Dei post-fall. And uh, there is something interesting there. Normally, the Reformed theologians, as I understand them, they make a distinction between the material and the formal image. Can you define that for us just a little bit, the material and the formal? Yeah, yeah. So uh, you you might— Just be prepared. This is going to be a longer podcast. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there— well, I'll keep it. I'll keep it real simple. So um, th- we can we can go into a lot more distinctions. But one distinction that is made between uh, human beings um, post fall and um, redeemed human beings is that uh, the image, the image itself, is uh, Christ or cr- uh, us in relation to Christ. And that's some people are when they're describing the image, they're talking about. Uh, our relationship particularly to Christ. And then others, when they're talking about the image, they're talking about humans in the image of God in the creation state. Um, so as created human beings, they are in in the image of God, or they are images of God. Um, so they would make those distinctions. Um, as, as I understand most Reformed theologians throughout uh, church history— now, there was a big discussion between Karl Barton, and Emil Bruner, Bruner and um, we don't want to go into those, all no, those no, distinctions. No. Um, they do talk about in what sense do we lose the image of God after the fall. Um, but most of the Reformed theologians, as I understand them, presuppose that in some sense we are image bearers uh, post-fall and even fall, um, unredeemed, fallen, not unbelieving human beings. And so we can point to um, scriptural passages like First um, Corinthians eleven seven, which uh, I think uh, presupposes images in the created state. In, it seems to be referring not just to believing individuals who believe in Christ, but to all uh, all all human beings. Right. J- James three nine also seems to indicate this as well, um, where. Um, to curse a human being is to curse the image of God, as, as James suggests. And I think that presupposes all human beings. It's not just talking about your fellow Christian believer, somebody who's in Christ. It's talking about all human beings. Pretty sure of that. Yeah. Um, 
but we could always have debates about those passages. All right. Yeah. You got anything else? Yeah. You, you we can move into quick discussion on gender and sex. So how does um, what it means to be a soul yeah. play into what it means to be male and female? Good. Yeah, good question. So this is a... I'm glad you asked it in your book. Yeah, yeah, good. <laughs> I, I am too. I am too. Um, it's a hot topic. Um, a racy topic even. Uh, <laughs> it is. It is. Um, I should have came up with a cooler title like Sexy Souls or something like that, but oh I don't know gosh. if that would pass <laughs> in an intro You're book. You're trying to make this an academic book, right? It's For more <laughs> academic, yeah. So I guess I need to do that in a pot version. Yeah, yeah. Me go. The message version. Yeah, the message version. That's right. A paraphrase. Um, so in the chapter, I deal with two specific issues. I deal with the concept of gender and um, – I distinguish that from, in some sense, uh, um, um, sexual practice or sexual behavior. And I describe uh, both of those issues or expound on both of those issues in the context of talking about different versions of the soul. So how might we think about gender as a property of the soul? So uh, there's a big debate right now in uh, Christian theological literature that uh, human beings are, um, are not uh, uh, essentially binary, male and female, but instead there's a plurality of, of, of genders. And so there's been an expansion to the traditional notion of what it means to be human as male and female. And uh, so, um, so I argue that, look, um, even if you want to throw out the, 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 the term uh, gender and just, just talk about sex or, or, or um, biological sex as being male and female, uh, very well and good. We can do that um, if you're happy with that. So long as you don't, uh, you don't um, use a thin or anemic understanding of what is meant by biological sex. And so long as that has some implications for social behavior and how we are to act and behave in the world. So some sort of social implications. So in other words, so I make a, I make a case for what I think is basically the traditional view that um, uh, being male and female is essential to the human race. It's somehow fundamental to what it means to be human beings. And... Um, and uh, uh, there is a real gender binary. So um, these properties of being male or female are essential to, to human beings. We really are male or female. So uh, that's a view called gender essentialism. So I argue for a, a modified version of that. And I say, look, uh, I think there's um, a lot of good, good evidence in the Bible and good evidence in uh, church tradition and theology and in practice as well as in some of the recent scientific literature, despite what some popular opinions would have you believe, mm -hmm. there really is um, a fact of the matter that we are male or female, and that has massive implications on who we are. So when we look back at some of the older um, catechetical and confessional statements, uh, I think there's good reason to believe that not only was it normative that human beings were understood to be male and female, but prescriptively they are male or female. 
generally speaking. So we might have a third category of a sort of a eunuch, right, or something that's talked about in the Bible. Um, certainly there, there is conceptual space for the life and vocation of singleness, right? Um, and um, a, a, a vocation of chastity or a non-sexual vocation where you don't, you don't enter into sexual relationships, right? So there's conceptual space for all that, and I make space for that. But I am um, convinced that uh, we are male and female, and that has implications for how we are to sexually behave. So homosexuality would be uh, excluded as a viable vocational practice. Sin. It would be sin. Right. Yes, yes, that's right. That's right. <laughs> I just want to be clear. He's just trying a to be perversion. As <laughs> it would be a corruption. We get it, Joshua. You're smarter than all of us. No, no. <laughs> um, yeah. I, so I was, I was also looking at your uh, and Cody, jump in. I'm just, we're just going. Um, uh, so there was a chapter here, uh, and I'm going to read your book. I promise. Uh, but it says, so why am I here? Like, what's the person, what's the purpose of life? Like, so how would you answer that? How, what's the purpose of the soul purpose of life purpose of being a human, uh, even direct, directly directing at our audience, Christianity, like how does, how, what, how does this all play together? Why am I here? We would answer, uh, what is the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So that's, that would be our answer. I'm just curious to see how and where you would go. So to answer this, that's a great question. (laughs) You asked it first. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So this becomes a theme in, in every chapter of the book as well. And I, I, I argue for an older traditional notion that, um, the end or purpose of man, and th- this isn't does does certainly doesn't contradict the Westminster Confession. So I w- I'm not going there. Um, That's but good. yeah, <laughs> yes. The traditional purpose or end of of human beings is uh, what some ancients have called the beatific vision. Define that. The vision of God. Okay. Right. So, um, um, I'm going. Let me just mention some preliminary items, and then I'll expand the the, the notion of vision as I understand it. But um, if we look at Scripture, Scripture is very um, uh, visual, and there's a lot of imagery that is um, that that pops up in the Old Testament, and the New Testament, especially in, in Revelation, uh, that describes um, this heavenly-like existence, this new earth where we will be in paradise, and um, it, it also describes a heavenly-like existence. Um, in Genesis 2-7, when God creates man, he creates him as an ensouled being when he breathes into him, and uh, I think that's a perfectly legitimate reading of that passage. If you read that in light of Ecclesiastes 12-7, uh, we are ensouled beings, and the soul is what goes up to be with the uh, Father in heaven, and our body goes to the grave and to the ground. And um, um, when Jesus in, in the, the Gospel of John says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Now, when Jesus is making that statement, I think he's saying something more profound than, than we might, we might uh, realize at first. We might sort of gloss over that. But I think what he's saying 
at least for those who hear rightly, right, uh, for sheep who hear rightly, when they see Jesus, they're seeing, um, they're seeing the immutable God. They're seeing God uh, incarnate in the face of Christ. And in seeing the face of Christ, they see God the Father. Uh, right? So there, there is a sense in which um, uh, they've been— I mean, he, I mean, Jesus even says— uh, he uses the I am statements to sort of harken yeah. uh, back to Yahweh and this like essential like I am I am a part of the Godhead I am God yes yeah yeah that's so. right that's right 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 well I mean and and we see throughout the book of John um, we see cases where people it's 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 as if they're they're having um, uh, an inspired moment where they recognize who they're seeing, yeah. right? And they, right. and when they recognize, they see him as the Messiah, the Lord over all creation. And I think that's an important revelation uh, uh, that points to something about the nature of redemption, uh, the nature of salvation. When we hear as, as good sheep who follow God, uh, when we hear the voice of Christ, particularly when we hear him in redemption, and when we see him, and by seeing him we see God the Father, uh, there's something that's that's being hinted at in terms of our capacities as human beings. It's higher than cre- our created capacities. So if you've experienced, um, when you experience your conversion moment, you came to recognize who God is, right, right. In, in the person and work of Christ. And I think there's something, um, when we're talking about the beatific vision or the vision of God, that, uh, you might say, is kind of a type of um, what is to come in the afterlife. When I go into the afterlife, I'm looking forward to, I'm hoping to see um, God uh, face-to-face, as some passages describe, whereas now we see uh, him in a shadow, right? right? Uh, in the future, we hopefully, we'll see, that's right. Hopefully, we'll see him unveiled in the future, right. and that's what I long to see. And so, um, why am I here? Well, I'm created so that uh, uh, I'm created for the purpose of of hearing and seeing uh, God, and I think that's true of the physical resurrection. When I am physically resurrected. I will truly see God for who he is in a way that I didn't see certainly as a fallen human being and only partly or um, at least um, not fully as a redeemed human being on this earth. I will come to see him fully in the afterlife uh, during the resurrection and I'll see all else in light of him in particular. Is there anything else you guys wanted to touch on and um yeah, a few more. I mean, this is a pretty long podcast, but we can hit on maybe a couple other things. Um, no, that was that was okay. really good. Yeah, awesome. I. Uh, I appreciate you coming, Josh. That's all. I mean, that was excellent. Yeah. Uh, if you guys want to email us at bmbt sixteen eighty nine at gmail we'd appreciate your emails. Also, we were going to try to do some shout outs for. We're gonna do that. We're say that for next episode. Okay, we, next we've episode. gotten some written reviews that I'm really happy with. Um, Joshua, can you tell us where we can, if anybody listening wants to get a hold of your book, where can they get it from? Yeah, uh, you can get it uh, basically at any online bookstore. You can get it at Amazon. <laughs> Amazon. Well, can you can you say the you title can get of it, it one at more Baker, time? Baker Academic Online. 
Uh, yeah, the title is An Introduction to Theological Anthropology, Humans Both Creaturely and Divine. What's the price? You know? uh, like 34. So it's yeah. not bad. I mean, it's, it's not bad. It's, it's a really not book. bad. For a good it's academic book, that's, yeah. a, that's a great and, book. And I'll say this, uh, for those who do want to buy the book, I encourage you to buy the book. It's really helpful. Um, and I'll say this, too. It's an academic book, but it's incredibly readable. Um, it's not difficult to understand. Even the lofty things that Joshua gets into in the book, he explains really well, and he repeats it over and over again throughout the book so that you're continually being reminded of these concepts that he's brought up before. And so it's really, um, really um, a great read. Um, it's really charitable, which is one of the things I appreciate probably most about the book is that he presents all these other views, but he's not demonizing views. He's not necessarily seeking to like, crush other views, but he's just saying, look, this is what other people believe. This is why you might want to believe that. But before you do, here are some implications for that. And I think that's a really um, good and helpful way of doing academic writing. And if you're going to buy the book, I would encourage you, particularly in our current moment, Amazon's really slow right now. Uh, I ordered a book last week from Baker and got it in like a couple of days. Oh, really? Yeah. So I would from just, Baker. Yeah. So Baker Publishing, you can just Google it, um, and it's pretty quick to find. So great. Awesome. And uh, yeah, I think that's it. Great, Joshua. Thank you so much for being on today, brother. Yep. Hey, good to be with you guys. You love my Baptist brothers. We awesome. Too, we love man. you too. We'll talk to you later, buddy. <laughs>